This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. During this pandemic, we've been checking in with various private and public schools about their approach to learning and keeping students and staff safe. We've learned that Kamehameha Schools may have been the first private school to offer an on-campus testing program to its ohana. It also started an in-house contact tracing program and has vaccinations underway. We reached out to talk to Crystal Busi, the safety program manager, and Darren Pai, communications director for KS. It had limited boarding at Kapalama to seniors only and only resumed on-campus learning during the fall. Our whole process was trying to make sure that we can do everything we can to you know, protect uh, the health and safety of our students, of our faculty, of all of our employees in our KS Ohana. You know, like almost every other school and every organization, really began last year when the pandemic really took off. And we immediately grounded ourselves in our principles uh, that we guide ourselves by at Kamehameha School. Um, you know, we, we, we have a saying, um, Hanai Ike Keiki Ola Kalahui, which is Ola Hawaii and roughly translates to nurture the keiki and the lahui, you know, the people will thrive. And so we really focused on what we can do to, to do right by our children, by our students, and make sure that uh, not only can we keep them safe, but make sure that we can maintain our commitment to their emotional, physical well-being and continue to provide them with world-class educational experience. But we also have to think about that MMS schools, and we're not a single campus. We have three K-12 campuses, 29 preschools, you know, thousands of students from across the state. So we were really looking at you know, developing plans that would allow us to protect our ohana, but are flexible enough to account for all the differences that we've seen in how the, the pandemic has impacted different counties, different communities across the state. We implemented a lot of safety procedures so that we could get going with our students and what we really started to look at the testing in earnest and to have it ready as we started to turn the calendar into the second semester of this year in 2021. It's a voluntary program and uh, the response has been very strong. You know, our, our students and our families and our staff have really shown a lot of interest because they've all been hungry for information and this is one more piece of data that we can all look at to make really good, solid, informed decisions as we move forward. Crystal, talk about how you know, we're able to offer the, the testing to, I guess, the staff first, right? Uh, as they started to bring the the students on? We actually started tiptoeing into this whole testing world back in October and November of 2020. And so we began to offer the testing to our KS Helmana and our staff. And we were really leveraging uh, community partners and, and clinics. And we were assessing, how is this going? What is the reception? Is this something that our community finds valuable? And is it something that we find valuable? And so we like like Darren said, it was it was really well received, and everybody appreciated having these extra opportunities to um, get a PCR test. And so, knowing that we we do have our on-site Malama Ola Health Services team available, we then started working late last year to actually implement our own in-house voluntary testing program. And so currently, like Darren said, we we went live in January and we're offering a saliva-based PCR test. And that's for our K-12 through campuses. And so that's on-site testing. And then for our preschools, we offer a home-based PCR test kit. And that's because we don't actually have healthcare professionals on-site at all of our 29 sites. And so testing for us, it's really just another layer of our overall approach to safety. Um, even though we have this voluntary program in place now, it's certainly another data point. It gives us a lot of uh, reassurance about, you know, what our own community transmission is looking like within KS. But it's still, you know, paramount that we're following all of those key pillars of, of safety, which is the mask wearing, the hygiene, you know, all the things that we're used to now in this pandemic environment. So to date, we've actually done about 2,500 tests and we've had less than a handful of positive results which has been really encouraging and so our overall positivity rate is is, is less than 0.2 percent um, wow. and, and it's just been really well received by both our, our students and our staff and their ohana and what are the challenges as you go you know island by island because you know I know everybody's under different uh, tiers can you talk about that 
Yeah, so we do have a community-based transmission approach just in terms of the frequency and, and, and how often we offer the testing. So it ranges from island by island. Some are uh, on a monthly basis, some can be biweekly, some can be weekly. And we also have to just work really closely with each school within each campus and with each preschool because, um, you know, everybody's on, still under hybrid learning models. And so we want to make sure that we're not disrupting their school day. And so we want to be able to do it efficiently and effectively. And so certainly when we first rolled it out, which was to um, our returning boarders, um, there's a lot of lessons learned by the health services team. And, and one of our ongoing kind of um, jokes is that this is going to be a great year for oral hygiene because um, we've gotten all of our, our kids to really understand the importance of teeth brushing and flossing and all of that good stuff so that when you're actually submitting your saliva sample, you, you don't have debris that's, you know, coming out and, and we'll make the sample um, inconclusive or rejected or anything like that. So there were lessons learned certainly along the way. And I think that now that, you know, it's been about two months, almost three months that we've been live with the program, um, we're, we're definitely in the flow and people are used to it. They're used to logging into our electronic health record and, you know, submitting their consent for voluntary testing. And so um, overall, it, it's, it's going much smoothly, much more smoothly now compared to when we were in the beginning of the year and we were kind of working through kinks. And Darren, can you talk about the boarding aspect? Because I know um, there are many students that normally come here to Oahu to board, but I know you had to really kind of scale that back a, a year ago. Uh, well, yeah, that's correct. You know, we, we really had to think carefully through it, and it was a difficult choice. But, you know, this year uh, we made the decision that to, to limit our, our residential life program you know, just to uh, seniors uh, from Oahu. And, you know, this is really, you know, in the interest of making sure that we can provide a safe, you know, healthy environment, you know, for the students. Um, but it, it's also because, you know, we were able to offer, you know, very robust, you know, online hybrid learning so that students from uh, neighbor islands who might otherwise, you know, be boarding at uh, Kapalama could still get world-class education and make sure that, you know, they're fulfilling all of their requirements and, and having an enriching experience. It was a big, difficult decision to make. Uh, you know, we, we believe it was the right thing to do in the interest of our, of our students and their families as well. It, there was a lot, of, a lot of thought and a lot of careful deliberation went into that decision. And ultimately, it, it came down to, you know, what can we do to make sure we can provide the opportunity um, and also do it in, in a way uh, where we can, you know, have all the proper safety precautions and uh, you know, provide a good environment for the Keiki. And were you able to bring back uh, any of the other boarders at all? At this point in the school year, we are looking at you know, a lot of information. Collectively, our, our, our society is learning a lot more about this disease, and we're continuing to very closely monitor the guidance uh, from the CDC. So we, with all this new information, we are looking at continuing to ramp up density on campus bringing students back for, you know, more engagement on campus. And you know, there's so many things that happen across our three campuses. You know, sometimes it's a challenge to keep track of all of them. So, you know, preparing for this interview, I, I kind of clicked through some of our, our social media feeds, our Instagram accounts from our different campuses. And you know, for us, it's been really important to have families see what's happening with their kids so that they can still, you know, feel connected and part of the KS Ohana. So, you know, we've been able to share those stories about students coming back for biology lab or coming back for their performing arts classes or, you know, engaging with each other through, you know, lessons about culture or, you know, engaging in, you know, field trips. And all while making sure that we're following the proper safety protocols, wearing masks and maintaining distancing and, you know, hand washing and all the proper sanitization. So not to say it hasn't been without its challenges, but it's also very rewarding to see that, you know, what it does for the, the children and the students. Because, you know, that, that connection with each other, that social aspect of being in school and being with, you know, the members of your class is a very important part of the whole experience. In our annual Founders Day celebration, where we recognize, you know, Kelly Poahi, our founder, in December, you know, this year, you know, we had to, you know, make the decision to go online with it and share it, um, you know, create a, a program that is normally done in person, but we aired it and broadcast it over, over the web to our KS Ohana, our Maui campus. They brought uh, a number of their students back uh, to campus. Everybody's, you know, seated appropriately distant, wearing their masks, and they brought them together for a, a, a joint viewing 
of that web program because it is a you know a very equally important experience for us at Kamehameha. You know, they wanted to make sure that the students had that opportunity to share that together. Well, I did enjoy the Ho'olalea online. It was <laughs> wonderful to hear the Hawaiian music and uh, and just be a part of that experience, even though we weren't there on campus. I'm sure you've heard similar stories from other schools and other organizations that you've spoken to. We've all had to find ways to adapt, find ways to see what we can do to preserve traditions, make sure we maintain those connections, and, and also you know, do what we need to do to, to keep everyone safe. One of the most you know gratifying things I think we've all felt is, as an ohana uh, at Kamehameha, we've all sort of recognized that we have our own, you know, personal responsibility, our own personal kuleana to help be part of the solution. You know, make sure we're wearing our masks and make sure that we're, you know, observing all the, the proper protocols and practices you know, to do what we can to get through this and, you know, get to that light at the end of the tunnel. And Crystal, can you talk about the vaccinations that might be offered to the teachers? That's one of the things, I mean, we're, we're super excited about. I mean, we, we at Kamehameha Schools, uh, we, of course, respect everyone's ability to make their own choices about their per- personal health. And we do encourage all of our ohana to stay informed about vaccinations. And we will help our employees make informed dis- decisions. We've been sharing information regularly from the CDC about vaccinations and doing different information sessions. And so even though vaccinations are not mandatory and we, we do strongly encourage them, especially for any of those that, that are in a high-risk category, any of our frontline staff, and, and we've just been really pleased to see that vaccinations have now been na- made available on all of our different islands. And so we've been regularly sending updates to all of our faculty and staff with appointment links and registrations and access codes. So that's Managing that across all of our different islands is a whole process in and of itself, but our staff have really kind of embraced this whole process and and this new vaccination world, and and we do see a lot of enthusiasm from from our whole faculty and staff in terms of being vaccinated. When did you start offering those? You know, the earliest island was uh, was Kauai, actually, and so I think that was back in, like, you know, early February, if if I'm not mistaken. And now I know Maui um, had opportunities in the last couple of weeks. Oahu has had a ton of opportunities opportunities. And so we did send out a survey, actually, it was a couple of weeks ago now, so it's a little bit dated, but uh, about over 85% of our staff did respond that they uh, do want to be vaccinated. Most had either received their first shot or um, already had their appointment. And we hear lots of stories every day around here. I'm sure it's it's the same for all essential workers in terms of employees getting their second shot and what symptoms they've had. And so we, we have seen a good turnout overall. Just to kind of piggyback, back on the the testing conversation, one of the things that we did for winter break was we offered voluntary testing before everybody returned on site after winter break. And so we're going to be following that same model for spring break as well. Um, So yeah, that's just another measure that we've kind of put into place that has, has been working well for us across all of our islands. That was Kamehameha School Bishop Estates' Crystal Busi. She is the uh, safety program manager for KS, and Darren Pai is communication spokesman for the school. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ward Village, committed to creating community and developing opportunities for shops, restaurants, and businesses in Hawaii. Learn more at wardvillage.com. Do you know exactly what medications your loved ones are taking and why? Having this information handy in an emergency can make all the difference and even save lives. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about real-world solutions in our digital age that can help. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company whose more than 680 employees are committed to a culture of safety and customer service. Learn more at parhawaii.com. 
This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time to test you with our backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking at one of planet Earth's most spectacular wilderness areas. Most of that wilderness is underwater. It's about a thousand miles south of Hawaii, a national marine monument that's maintained through a partnership between the Nature Conservancy and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The Nature Conservancy uh, bought the isolated atoll in 2000 from the Fullard-Leo family, which had previously turned down offers to have it used as a nuclear waste site and a casino. According to the Nature Conservancy, quote, what we can learn here about global climate change, coral reefs, marine restoration, and invasive species promises to inform conservation strategies for island ecosystems throughout the Pacific and around the world. It is a beautiful spot in our backyard, and we are looking for its name. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities by supporting affordable housing with support for nonprofits such as Honolulu Habitat for Humanity. Learn more at nareethawaii.com. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check has a story about a possible vaccination card to help keep the virus in check as more visitors return to the islands. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So this uh, information about the vaccine passport, that's from the lieutenant governor, Josh Green. Yes, the lieutenant governor thinks that this could be uh, done uh, by May 15th, that we could have something that could be used for uh, travel uh, to and from the state. Uh, it could be used possibly to in, in, instead of the testing uh, program. So instead of uh, getting tested three days before traveling to come here, you could just show proof of uh, vaccination and, and as an alternative. So that that's the idea. And Josh Green was in charge of the Safe Travels program, right? So this is kind of like what, Safe Travels 2.0? Sort of, but he's not really in charge of this. This is Mm. being handled by the Department of Health, and they aren't really talking about it. Um, I I called, tried to get comment from General Hara, who who heads uh, Hawaii Emergency Management, and he wouldn't comment or didn't have time. Uh, But we did reach out to the state's uh, partner on this, which is uh, this organization, uh, developing something called Common Pass. It's called the Commons Project. Uh, they didn't comment either, but they did write back and say, we'll have an announcement regarding Hawaii next week, meaning this week. So uh, there could be something coming out. We don't know what it is. They wouldn't say, but they did say they'll have an announcement. Uh-oh. So did Lieutenant Governor steal some of the governor's thunder? Uh, I don't know. I, d- I don't think so. Uh, he's been talking about this for a while, and a lot of people have been asking the governor and uh, the Department of Health uh, director, Dr. Char, Libby Char, about this. So I-, I don't think so. So now these passports, they're in place or in the works anyway uh, uh, in other parts of the world, right? That's right. Yeah. One of the really interesting things is they're using them in New York City now. New York State has a deal with IBM. And they're using it to get into New York Rangers hockey games at Madison Square Gardens um, and basketball games as well. And 
you know, people go there. You can have now have crowds at sports events if everybody shows proof that they've been vaccinated. Uh, so it could. This is a pilot program. Again, it's it's very limited to this, but this is the idea. And people like uh, Lieutenant Governor Green say this could open the door for lots of things here, not just travel, but weddings. Uh, he's saying the, the Honolulu Marathon is something we could possibly have if everybody can show a, a passport. Uh, this is the idea. Again, there's still a lot to be known about this, but it, it could be a really good tool, it seems like, according to advocates, to uh, open things up a little more and keep people safe. Right. I mean, if uh, they've got crowds uh, that are starting to come back for sports events, you know, like like you mentioned, basketball, football, uh, yeah, then why not the Honolulu Marathon or the Ironman? Yeah, I, I think one of the questions is, and there was a conversation we had today at the House COVID uh, Committee uh, and asked some questions about this. The, the one thing that's not known, um, and it's one of these things everybody's looking at, is like how much um, can it still spread if everybody's been vaccinated? So to what extent could we have something akin to herd immunity if you have a huge percentage of people vaccinated? And, and the idea is we don't know. And, but the answer is the data will tell us. So eventually, once we have a huge percentage of the population vaccinated the, and the case counts go low, then we can kind of tell that something's going on. And if you have a bunch of people together who are vaccinated, it could um, be safe. That's that's the idea, at least. Well, we are seeing more people uh, in Waikiki, that's for sure. I think there were, uh, oh, what was it, 20,000 people a week ago that came in. And I think we've been averaging like fourteen or 15,000 a day uh, arriving in the islands. So definitely the crowds are, are growing. The crowds are growing. The case counts are still pretty low if you if compared to uh, before uh, – before, so we, we're still at, I don't know, 50, as of March 15th, we were looking at 50-something new cases a day. It's gone up a little bit. So even with all these travelers coming, the case counts are relatively low. Um, so that's good, but, but it is a concern. I mean, it's something everybody's watching. And the question is, how much will vaccines help uh, reduce the cases? All right. Well, thank you very much, Stuart Yurton. Thank you. We have been talking to Stuart Yurton for our reality check today. You can read his story about the vaccine passport at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, a philanthropic organization working to address the human and economic impacts of COVID-19 on island communities. More about its County Strong Funds program at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org. Imagine a group of engaged peers who get together to connect with each other, to celebrate and support our community, and to have a good time. You've just envisioned Generation Listen, an HPR project that connects younger listeners with the station and each other. We're always looking for new members and volunteers interested in joining our leadership team. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash COVID help or by calling 808-207-7634. This year, the University of Hawaii Cancer Center marked its 50th anniversary. It's the only National Cancer Institute designated center in Hawaii and the Pacific. During the last year, because of the pandemic, we have heard about how many people put off regular checkups, but early screenings are key to surviving cancer. Today, we hear from researcher Kevin Castle, whose specialty is public health services and who is working to reduce the risk of colon cancer in whole communities. Here in Hawaii, colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer found in men and women. Death rates are high. It's the second leading cause of cancer death in men and third among women. It is a highly preventable cancer. If or early through screening, 40% of cancers can be prevented. And that entails, it's very simple screening, and this incurs in people.
what they can do is do simple either fecal immunohistochemical blood tests of their stool, and that takes about maybe 10 minutes to send that in. And from that test, they can determine if a person is at risk for colorectal cancer and it would warrant further screening if needed. But that test reduced deaths from cancers about 40%. So the actual screening rates across the state are increasing every year. Since about 2014, rates have been going up. Generally across the state, I think we're somewhere around 79% of people who are over age 50 are getting screened. But if we slice it up by different ethnic groups, some are not as well, you know, in falling in line with the screening recommendations. So we have groups like Native Hawaiians, and specifically Native Hawaiian men who are getting screened at a rate of about 60%, which is well below the actual guidelines by the CDC. We want to get people up into the 80 and 85% range of being screened, you know, to reduce those deaths. Filipinos actually have a lower screening rate, and they're at about 52%. So, you know, we have outreach and we have engagement programs. It's really about, you know, talking with people, letting them know about the risk and how easy it is to get screened and, and to mitigate, you know, that, that risk for, um, for colorectal cancer. So that's the good news is that, uh, you know, colorectal cancers can be prevented, but it does entail getting screened by a physician using one of the tests I mentioned, and that needs to be done on an annual basis. There are other tests, the colonoscopy, which is where they actually go into the colon and look to see if there are any what are called polyps, and these are precancerous lesions. What happens is over time they can grow into cancers, but if they're caught early, they can be removed and reduce the person's risk in that way. So, you know, there's good news and there's bad news. You know, I, I think it's really important to talk with people about the idea of getting screening, especially when they get to be about age 45 and over, you know, just having a regular relationship with the doctor, talking about a regular regimen of screening, whether that would be annual, you know, blood fecal occult blood testing in the stool. The colonoscopy, I believe once you have a screening test with that, you're good for about a clear a screening test for colonoscopy. You're clear for about five to 10 years. So that would be an ideal circumstance, but it is a little more involved. Talk about the, the research that you're doing over there at the Cancer Center. Well, my study was really focused in on Native Hawaiian men. I looked at that low rate of about 40%, and it was one of the lowest rates in the state. And we already had, you know, built the discussion groups. Um, this is the No Ke Olopono Onokane Project. It's a project that was started by the Cancer Center in conjunction with other partners like the American Cancer Society, uh, the Native Hawaiian Healthcare System. And what we were doing, we started a discussion about in, in uh, early 2000s with Native Hawaiian men about, you know, talking about some of these risks for cancers and what they thought about them and how we could engage men in a better way to build a relationship with their doctors. So as a result of those initial discussions, recently we got some funding in 2014 from HMSA and working with the, the Hawaii Department of Health, the Hawaii Comprehensive Cancer Control Program, to start looking at ways we can engage Native Hawaiian men. The whole mechanism is actually what we like to call culture as intervention. We use um, a, a cultural process or cultural um, value uh, that's been historic in Hawaiian culture, the hale mua, or the men's house, where men in the community would gather and actually was part of the food preparation process in traditional Hawaiian um, customs. So we re-engaged that hale mua concept to have men meet and talk about their health, and we kind of embedded this idea of colorectal cancer screening into this group, you know, where the men were talking about health, we were talking about healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, and we gave them an opportunity through the, the funding provided by HMSA and the Hawaii Comprehensive Cancer Control Program to actually do a FIT test. The FIT test, it costs about $25 to $30, but if you wait and a person has to get diagnosed and treated, that can cost up to $10,000 to $40,000. So there's a real, there's a life a mortality reducing need to have men screen, and also it's a benefit. So HMSA saw the, the, the value in getting these men to talk. So through that project, we started in 2014. We recruited about 400 men statewide at about 14, uh, you know, 14 different locations. We held 43 uh, discussion sessions with men. We got about 232 men to actually be, who are over 50, to be part of the study. And about 149 of them, about 60, 64% over age 50, 
agreed to take the test. So we had about 115 men taking the test, which is about 77% of the people in the study. Most of them tested negative, about 59 tested negative. Two tested positive, and these are people that had been, you know, knowledgeable about screening but just hadn't done a follow screen for some years. So we got them in contact with their doctors. And most of the men learned something about colorectal screening and colorectal health. But the most important feature was that we got men up to date with their screening guidelines. So they, they knew about it, and hopefully they can spread the word to other men. Since that time, we've actually continued the Halimua. We've actually incorporated more traditional processes and traditional, you know, cultural traditions into the, the Mua itself, you know, things like prayer, pule, and, and other things to keep the men engaged with the health aspect of it. And so we, we continue to promote the colorectal screening part as well. We're continually to changing the program, adding more topics as men talk about things that they want to consider as part of a group discussion with the men. So the study is ongoing. We got some funding from the Hawaii Department of Health to continue with adding some more additional processes and Hawaiian customs to continue this for several years to actually keep the men engaged have opportunities for them to talk about health, engage with other topics, including colorectal screening, but that's one of the, the primary topics. One of the, the nice features about this project is we have a group of Native Hawaiian physicians that actually come to the sessions, and they actually talk with the men and answer any questions that they might have about health, about colorectal screening, about diet and nutrition is another topic. We, we talk about how to prepare healthy foods, but we also try to link everything about the discussion to concepts of health and promoting health amongst Hawaiian men. And what about other studies you might be doing across the Pacific? Well, you know, I actually do a lot of outreach work. I have some affiliations and work with other communities, particularly medically underserved communities. We were fortunate we were able to go into some of the public housing communities here in Hawaii and actually talk about health and health promotion within these communities. And these are really medically underserved Populations, a lot of them have migrated from the Compact of Free Association states in Micronesia, and they have come here trying to gain employment. And so we talk about some of the health issues that they may be encountering. We did an assessment of that, and from that assessment, we wanted to look at, and we're in discussions now, about ways to promote colorectal cancer screening as a feature of this. We're part of an NCI group of designated cancer centers across the country, so we have a coordinated approach where we look at ways to reduce risk for certain key cancers, and colorectal cancer screening is one of those key cancers. So as part of this national outreach network of cancer centers, we uh, colorectal cancer screening is, is paramount. What we do is I have a community health educator who goes out and works. She's, she's from Koshirai, and she works with some of the Micronesian communities here in Hawaii and talks about certain cancer topics, and one of them is, is colorectal cancer screening. We have a program called Screening to Save, and it's basically just making people aware about the risk factors, as I mentioned, about age being a risk factor, about family history being a risk factor, and getting a relationship with a doctor to have one of those tests done, either the FIT test or colonoscopy or whatever the doctor would recommend. That was Kevin Castle talking about the search, uh, research underway at the University of Hawaii Cancer Center around preventative screenings for colon cancer in underserved communities. Castle is also working with communities in American Samoa. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. HBR's Dave Lawrence sits down with astronomer Christopher Phillips to talk about NASA and asteroids. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny, very troubled planet. And as always, we're grateful to have the expertise of Christopher Phillips to walk us through it. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave, it's good to be here. So this week's stargazers, the planet Mars, continues to be visible in the evening sky till it sets in the west at around 11.30 p.m. 
The moon this week is approaching its full phase, and so stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens is going to be very challenging. I understand uh, you've got information on some Mauna Kea-based stargazing involving NASA and asteroids. Do I have it right? Indeed you do, yes. Atop Mauna Kea is the NASA Infrared Telescope, or IRTF for short. During the past weekend, the IRTF was used to observe a near-Earth asteroid with the catchy name of 2001 F032. <laughs> this cosmic wanderer passed within 1.2 million miles of our planet. Now, while that may sound like a huge distance, in cosmic terms, it's a little bit too close for comfort. Researchers using IRTF took this opportunity to study the asteroid as it made its close approach, and we are hoping to find out what they learned very soon. Now, give us some perspective on the distance of this, Chris. While it sounds close, have some come closer than that? They have indeed, yes. These events are relatively common, and some asteroids have even passed between the Earth and the Moon, which is about 250,000 miles away. And what's the story on its threat level, Chris? Well, it's possibly a threat, but not for 100 years or so, so plenty of time out. But that doesn't mean it's not worth looking at in the flyby. By studying these asteroids, we can yield important information about their composition, their mass, and velocity. And all of these things can help us determine the asteroid's orbital path and possibly what to do about it should it become a problem with the Earth. If this thing was to collide with the planet, what would happen? Well, this thing weighs in at about 200,000 tons, and it's about 500 meters across, which is actually quite small for one of these things. It's nowhere near large enough to be a planet killer, but it's heavy enough to wipe out something the size of a city, say, and cause widespread environmental chaos. Would that be the kind of thing you'd feel all over the planet when it slammed into the Earth? Quite possibly. It would definitely pick up on earthquake sensors around the globe. Tell us about some of the other folks who were involved in looking for these. Well, not only are there telescopes here in Hawaii, but there are also telescopes around the world. And one of the most powerful is about to come online down in Chile, and it will discover possibly thousands of these asteroids during its mission. And uh, whether you find that comforting or terrifying, <laughs> though, is really a matter of perspective. What a nice note to leave it on this week with you. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Phillips, we appreciate the heads up, and we know you'll keep us keep us abreast of the situation. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Thank you so much. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about a spectacular underwater wilderness area about a thousand miles from here. The equatorial northern Pacific atoll, located almost due south of the Hawaiian Islands, is roughly a third of the way between Hawaii and American Samoa. At any given time, it's a temporary home to a dozen or so scientists attached to the Nature Conservancy or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The relatively untouched waters around the atoll are host to an amazing variety of sea creatures, including over 150 species of coral. It was first sighted in 1798 by Captain Edmund Fanning of Stonington, Connecticut, master of the American merchant ship Betsy, who narrowly avoided wrecking his ship on the reef on a, vi a voyage to Asia. Less than a decade later, the USS Palmyra was shipwrecked on the reef on November 7, 1802, and that is how Palmyra Atoll, also called Palmyra Island, got its name. Lots of callers uh, buzzed us on this one, but uh, Wayne Gao of Punchbowl got it first. That's our quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. group formed this past summer to help educate rock climbing enthusiasts about respecting Native Hawaiian burials and other important archaeological sites. We talked to Sky Razone Oles about the sport. To learn more, I'm a climber. I boulder. So bouldering is climbing without the use of rope. So if we fall, it's a free fall onto a pad. And then there is also sport climbing done here in Hawaii where you're harnessed in and you're using bolts that go into the rock. 
just to keep you safe and you're going to be going above 30 feet is usually when you start getting into the bolted thing. So our group essentially started because there was a significant site where climbers and people that were recreating outdoors were at where we found out that there was petroglyphs near these climbing sites. Essentially, the state hadn't done an archaeological survey and they were unaware of these petroglyphs. And our group realized that there was a lack of education out there for the community that's not familiar with our cultural practices or our cultural history. So we focused on establishing a connection, creating a historical knowledge for the entire community just so that they could appreciate these petroglyphs as the rest of the Kanaka community would. And then we've been working with the state parks to make sure that they are actually protecting these sites and aware of these sites more regularly. And so what was your concern with the petroglyphs and the damage that these uh, climbers would cause? Yeah, so within that, um, essentially there was some nonprofits over the years that were clearing invasive trees and plants, and there was members of the public there. So there was petroglyphs that were very, very faint and hard to see, and even me, I, I was not aware that they were there until an archaeologist pointed them out to us. So when you're touching petroglyphs, the oil from your hands and things can severely damage them. And the thing is, petroglyphs will fade over the years, but we want to retain that space, that sacred space, that historical space for our keiki and future generations so that they can feel connected to our past. And so within that, the climbers were unaware that there was petroglyphs there. So I don't fault the climbing community at all for that. Really, it comes down to the fact that those petroglyphs weren't protected. There's other sites within this specific area that have metal fencing around the petroglyphs. So you would assume the normal person who's not familiar with archaeology would assume that all of the other rocks are probably clear of petroglyphs. So it wasn't necessarily that anybody did it on purpose. It's just that without that information being out there, wrong choices are made. Right. So it's it just a matter of not knowing. Exactly. And that's our group's main focus is to create those educational spaces within hiking and climbing. You know, if you're doing an active hike and you're unfamiliar with the historical significance of it, are you really going to get everything out of it? Probably not. If you're now doing a hike that you know was a significant trail and that they have you know, archaeologically dated back to 1200 AD, are you going to approach that hike a little differently? I would hope so. I hope that there would be a, more of a reverence when you enter into these historical spaces, knowing that you are doing the same hike or the same climb that traditional Hawaiians did. The Pali had... Hawaiian climbers, you know, essentially climbing is innately Hawaiian, whereas we look at Pohaku now as something that's so significant that it, it might be off limits. But when you look back into the history of Hawaiians, we were along every pali, along the cliffs, we were up and down, you know, cliff sides for fishing and hunting, but it was a practice of getting A to B, moving where we needed to be for whatever the reason might have been. Now it's a uh, healthy lifestyle and it's a way to reconnect with the land that a lot of Hawaiians are missing and I hope to encourage Hawaiians to find new ways spiritual ways to connect to the pohaku in that sense so is it your thought that you want to see what signs up say you know don't tread here I mean essentially the state could do more along the lines of education they could put up a hipana sign in significant sites and then on top of it we have community concerns you know and I'm looking into I'm saying multi-generational communities and Kanaka communities where they're being overrun with parking concerns and things for for hiking or climbing and you know we all want to recreate what is beautiful we all want to enjoy the mountains but are these communities having a space to get their voice out? Are they being supported by the state of Hawaii? And the answer is no. So our goal with Kanaka Climbers is to support and help voice concerns, amplify concerns from multi-generational communities and Kanaka communities. You just recently did a presentation before the Oahu Burial Council. 
is it your plan to talk to the other councils from the other islands as well? I would love to do that. Yes, I would love to actively start working with the other islands in March. We are going with our archaeological team. We're going over to Kauai because some climbers actually asked us if we would support climbing in a specific location. So currently we are working on pulling archaeological reports, gathering mo'olelo from that area to determine if it's something that we can agree with. Do we feel like you are going to be ethically moving in this space or do we feel like the area is too culturally significant for you to continue climbing? And we're so honored that that climbing community has reached out to us and so the steps we're taking is going to archaeological history, going through those reports, gathering Mo'olelo. And when we get over to Kwa'i, we have meetings set up with the Kapuna from that specific site just to talk with them about what are their main concerns with this becoming a larger scale hiking or climbing area. If they have concerns with parking, are they worried about you know their driveway being blocked? Simple things like that. We want to work to make sure the communities are heard. And that is our goal, is to amplify those communities. But the Burial Council, I know their Kuleana is really protecting Evie that might be, let's say, you know, hidden in caves, and and they just don't want people poking around in there. And so it's your thought then that you will be kind of, I guess, protectors in a way, just by educating people about maybe, you know, where not to go. Yes. When it comes to Evie Kupuna, that's something that is so close to our board and our community's heart. So Hawaiians are buried everywhere. They are in every spot, in every valley, in every ili of of Hawaii. And that's something we will not get away from. And I want to encourage people to understand that when you're recreating, you are recreating in burial sites. You are touching and interacting with Pohaku that is fuel by our kupuna and in order to preserve those areas there has to be knowledge about that it has to be a common knowledge that you are entering into spaces where kupuna are are present and how can we do that safely you know and then similar to that the laws surrounding even kupuna protections or cultural protections are not very clear they're different per each land that you're on. If you're on private property, sometimes the NAGPRA laws that would protect burials are slightly different than if you're on state land or public land. So it's our position to try to encourage people to understand those laws and make them understand the cultural and ethical ways to move around these sites. You know, taking photos of Iwikupuna is illegal and completely frowned upon within our, our culture. So when you're entering into caves, which everybody is curious and everybody's excited to explore, we understand that. But you have to understand that almost every cave in Hawaii at one point was probably a burial. And how can you navigate yourself ethically and make sure that you are respecting the host culture when you're here if you're unaware of our history? I don't want to tell people where burial sites are because that's completely against my spiritual belief, along with most Hawaiian spiritual belief, that if they're not your kapuna, you shouldn't know. Right, but so at least you're saying, way, but just to have a discussion about how you how do you educate people just to not go there, <laughs> right? Yeah, so within that, that's just, you know, we're doing Instagram stories, we're explaining through posts that every site has burials. When there's a significant area, we've actually gone to websites that have climbing Um, route up and we've let them know that actually this route is kapu and nobody should do it and all of the climbing websites and the climbing community has been completely respectful they've removed those climbs from online to stop encouraging people to go to those locations Um, and and that's the most we can ask for in that because I can't tell them hey there's a burial right here you know I have to navigate in a way where we are saying per, you know, the cultural significance of this site, it's still in cultural use. And we would love if you would respect the Hawaiian concern and remove this from your website. So basically you're, you're driving them to other areas that are not so sensitive. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And so, you know, I know there's also the concern, too, about the geology, where maybe some of the places where folks are climbing, you know, it's crumbly. And, and there are those hazards. 
Uh, but, you know, uh, across uh, the mainland, there are, you know, indoor climbing venues. And, and there is one here on Oahu. I don't know what else is out there on the neighbor islands. When it comes to in terms of, like, the continental climbing, it's a fully recognized sport. You can climb in most national parks across America. Now, when it comes to climbing here, it's, it's not a recognized sport. There's only one legal area to sport climb. And that is on Oahu up at Mokalaia. And you are required to have a conditional permit to do that. And anybody who's interested in that, I would recommend you going to Hawaii Climbing Coalition. They've worked with Access Fund to maintain and get that legal access to climbing there. And then in terms of climbing indoors, which anybody who's interested in climbing, I would recommend starting indoors so you can learn how to do it safely. We have Oahu Bouldering. That is in YPO. And then there is one gym on Hawaii Island. And then there's another one coming soon on Hawaii Island. And then from that, we have a new gym coming soon. I believe May is the day that they're hoping to open, and that will be in Kaka'ako. They're going to be called High Climb. They're going to be about 8,000 square feet, I believe. And this gym has committed to sponsoring our cleanup. They're committed to encouraging the educational parts of the cultural aspect of climbing and hiking within Hawaii. That was Sky Razan Oles of the newly formed group Kanaka Climbers. Its mission is to educate climbers and hikers about making sure they tread carefully around cultural sites across the state. The group recently appeared before the Oahu Burial Council to explain what it's all about and has reached out to the neighbor islands. Now, tomorrow, we plan to hear from Honolulu Police Chief Susan Ballard and Lieutenant Governor Josh Green and Hawaii Mayor Mitch Roth. Lots to talk about. Do you have a story idea uh, to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation. Head to our Facebook page. Remember, all of our shows are archived. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>